Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Come on in, the weather is fine, as we have nine new releases to the Warner Archive Collection this week. And time to rhyme. And they, they run the gamut from bold and blue to something old becoming once again something new but let's take away the mystery and and let you know what's coming up this week from the warner archive and we're going to start out our discussion with a new to blu-ray title that is also new to home video and we're bringing you the blue as beware the batman shadows of gotham season one part one comes to blu-ray on the very same day it's making its dvd debut so it's day and date we're excited we're going to talk about batman and this is the year of batman right gentlemen Oh, yeah. 75 years scary. You but before not. there was Batman, there was Shemp. And we have volume two of the Vitaphone Comedy Collection featuring Shemp Howard with 21 vintage short subjects starring the fourth stooge. And uh, this is by Consumer Demand, and we're very excited about it. Then we have What Price Hollywood, the 1932 RKO feature starring Constance Bennett. And then returning to print on DVD after a long absence are six Paramount Pictures, Testament, King David, Lady Jane, Brain Donors, Angela's Ashes, and The Reckoning. And that is a sextet of varying differences, probably as different as different can be. But before we go any further, let's go back to the beginning and hail the arrival of Beware the Batman, Season 1, Part 1 on Blue. You threw out, and I think this is an industry term, day and date. Could you describe, George, what that means? Well, it actually has its roots in the theatrical business, which Mm -hmm. would mean that you're opening the movie on the same day and the same date in two cities or four cities or six cities. But... We are releasing our Blu-ray of Beware the Batman, Shadows of Gotham, Season 1, Part 1, on the very same day and date that Warner Home Video is releasing the DVD to retail stores. So so this is the first time we've ever released something like newish at the same time as regular home it's video. It's brand new and we worked in partnership with our yeah. good friends and colleagues at Warner Home Video to be able to bring this title to you on Blu-ray because if we didn't do that it would be DVD only. So this way everybody wins and this is a unique series because it's a very different take on the Caped Crusader. Wouldn't you say Dan? Yeah, I'm glad we finally got <laughs> to talking about Batman, you industry wonks. By the uh, way, no, no, Day and Date pioneered yeah. by Tom Laughlin of Billy Jack fame recently departed. May he rest in peace. Now, getting back to the Bat, unlike Brave and the Bold, Mm -hmm. this particular incarnation of Batman was actually new to me because I haven't had time to catch up. This was 2013. This was like on the air last year. This is a brand new series that debuted last year on Cartoon Network. And and there are actually episodes on our Blu-ray set that have yet to that air. That have yet to air. Now, oh, this really? Is, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, episodes 12 and 13. You want to see them, you get the DVD or, or our Blu-ray. Now, this uh, shows uh, under the supervision of Glenn Murakami, who's DC animation vet. It is, pardon the pun, a bold new take on the Batman with a very striking different animation style. 
which some people might be jarred by because it is really it's, it's highly visual. It's very sort of computer animation, it, computer game I, looking. And I showed it actually on Blu-ray to a few people who were into this kind of thing because I wanted to get their take on it because I've seen the fan chatter. And some people have a very striking reaction to what they describe as like almost a video game uh, cutscene style. That's very interesting to me coming at it because I'm not a super animation fan, but I got totally sucked into this. This is the thing. This is a Batman for binge-watching TV. Oh, my God, yes. This is such a strong storyline throughout all 13 episodes. I mean, the B story moves it along. It's not even a B story. It's it, the through line. There it, are no Bs yeah, in yeah, the actual yeah. making of the <laughs> But as Dan is saying, like the A, B, you know, because there's an A, B through line and then it becomes an A, B, C and then the B's and the A's weave. This uh, is story construction. It, it's, a, it's a really, really fascinating take. They've taken elements from different eras of Batman. They've taken a lot of stuff from, like, they got Metamorpho and Katana from Mike W. Barr's Outsider. So Metamorpho is, of course, an older character. And then you've got Professor Pig and Mr. Toad from Grant Morrison's run on the character. Re-envisioned, you've got a really bold take on Alfred in this Alfred series, he's is. an XMI six agent. He's a very tough, strong. He's much more of a battle mentor <laughs> than a butler. I almost got the feeling that he worked for Unit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this uh, is four and a half hours of like solid so the, wall-to-wall plot. So the basic setup is: there's a deep conspiracy lurking behind the scenes. You're going to see not new Batman villains, but new to animation Batman yes. villains, re-envisioned in this world. Bruce Wayne is very much at the beginning trying to do it all on his own. Alfred's doing his best to mentor and train him, but knows that he needs help. He brings in a young lady who has secrets of her own, including a soul-taker sword. Uh. And the rest you need to enjoy. But I did want to point out, speaking of binge-watching, Matt, did you happen to catch who did the voice of Humpty Dumpty? I didn't. Matt Jones, best known as Badger from Breaking Bad. Oh, that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. A a lot of the voice, again, Andrea Romano, who we did a panel with uh, at the Paley Center. She's the best. uh, She did such a great job. It sucks you right in. All the performances are great. This is not the same target demographic as Batman Brave and the Bold, which is a very different Batman. This Batman, it's a very mature take, and you see people struggling with problems and issues. And We get to see Batman's world. procedural side. We also get to see Batman gets hurt in this series. Frequently. Yes. He's and he vulnerable. takes time to cover. This is a very sort of, wounds. sort of Daniel Craig, James Bond take on Batman. And, and Dan and I are talking very loud and very fast because we're excited. this... Took us and both there was by no dexedrine in <laughs> any of the water in which they drank. I'm, I'm driving a truck with Benny. <laughs> Flashback to a previous but podcast. But this series looks great on Blu-ray, and that's why we're bringing it your way. So yeah. uh, Beware the Batman, Season 1, Part 1, now available from the Warner Archive Collection. And it's just representative of the different kinds of content that we want to bring you to serve various fans who have various fan needs. Now, to go way, way back in time... I'm, I'm laughing at your transition right when now. When you have a Stooge fan, you have the same passion as a Batman fan. Yes. And very often, fans of the Stooges are also fans of Batman. Like all of us, we all love the Stooges and we all love Batman. And there was such a great response to our first Vitaphone comedy collection, which featured not only Fatty Arbuckle, but Shemp Howard, that fans were demanding demanding more 
as they should. And so we've gathered the rest of his Vitaphone short appearances from the 1930s and gathered them on two discs in this Vitaphone Comedy Collection Volume 2. And what's interesting is, and we want to shout out to uh, one of our customers contacted us and let us know that Shemp had a tiny bit part in a short called Gobs of Fun. And it wasn't part of his filmography. It wasn't listed anywhere. And thanks to this person letting us know, we were able to add it to this collection. So what would have been 20 shorts is 21 shorts or 21 shorts. And so this goes back in time a little bit and then continues on chronologically to the very end. And Shemp has partnered with people like Harry Gribben and Daphne Pollard, but most notably, he takes on the role of Nobby Walsh in seven Joe Palooka shorts. You know, I had a really interesting conversation last night with Kevin, who's, who's one of uh, our production team, mm-hmm. and I, we've mentioned Kevin before. He worked on Space Stars for you people. And you should thank him for yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, so what did you think of the Shemp collection? And he was oh, that's like, funny. and he had the reaction that I expect everyone's gonna have, which was like, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't really think much of Shemp in the Stooges, but after seeing this, like I really, really respect him, and, and I really understand what he did when he rejoined the Stooges because he, I mean, especially when you see him in Joe Palooka, his Nobby Walsh character has elements. I mean, he's like all three Stooges and all four Marshmallows in one. <laughs> yes. And then when he gave up his career to help his brother and his friend out after Curly could no longer perform, you know, he had to really limit himself to fit in with that ensemble. Because he was the instigator in, and especially these Joe Palooka shorts, this was a, such a good venue, you know, and these were very popular, weren't they? Very popular, and uh, Joe Palooka was a comic strip by Ham Fisher, and uh, a very popular character, and there were later Joe Palooka movies, and not to be confused with Bazooka Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Robert Norton plays Joe Palooka, and he's a blonde actor that resembled the actual physical drawing of Joe Palooka. But not the original physical drawing. Joe Palooka's appearance in 1921 changed through the years with each new heavyweight Uh, champ until Joe Lewis, at which point he became the guy that Robert looks very much like. Well, I'd I'd seen the strips of this era. No, I mean, this is is who he really... Yeah, this is the definitive Joe. Now, was the Nobby character... I'm not familiar with the comic strips. Did Shemp play this as the character in that, or did he... I mean, it seems just so him in watching him in the earlier sets of shorts. It's a floor wax and a dessert topping. The answer is that, yes. Yes. both. It's both Shemp bringing his Shempness to it, and he is very much playing the character in the comic strip. The old timer. Yeah, and right, the old timer. I could see that the old timer and the haberdasher would be the comic strip, but it was Shemp who. who, (laughs) Yeah, and then my other question is: was like Punchy and those were those other characters in the strip, or were those original? And how the girlfriend is from the strip, Nobby's Uh from the strip. The rest of it is Vitaphonia. That's what it feels like because. There is a comedic ensemble around Shemp and Joe who uh, fill out the proceedings in each of the episodes. My favorite was Punchy because he's a big guy doing shtick because he's punch drunk. He's also a walking delicate and, that, that, that's, and he couldn't stop That's eating. why one of the shorts is called Punch and Beauty. 
Good so Warner these Brothers. shorts have been long in coming, and part of the reason is that when you're dealing with short subjects you, and uh, nitrate film, it sometimes can be a long and arduous process, and you have to ship films in the right weather so they don't explode on you. But finally, <laughs> we got <laughs> this done. Solid, We've been wanting to do it for many years, and we thank the fans for patiently waiting. And yes, there's more Vitaphone to come, comedy, music, drama, all in the coming months and years. But right now, we have Shemp, and we're so grateful. And you may ask, what price Hollywood? Well, what price Hollywood was one of the earliest examples of Hollywood looking at itself, certainly in the sound era. And uh, we have remastered this film, and not only have we remastered it, but it comes from restored film elements, which we have been patiently waiting to emerge from the laboratory so we could start remastering. So if you've seen this film before on television, with rotten quality and uh, replaced titles, all of that is changed. And this film doesn't open up with the RKO Tower, but with the rarely seen oh. RKO Pathé <laughs> Rooster. I, I wrote down a note to be like, ask okay, about the rooster. Ask about the rooster because it's the same world except. It isn't a radio tower. There's a rooster in the North Pole. Right. If you want to know more about Archeo and Archeo Pathé, there's a wonderful book about the Aegis of Archeo by Richard Jewell that talks about the early years of Archeo, its formation, its founding, its merger with Pathé and its unmerger with Pathé. Because the Pathé company mm -hmm. actually has its roots in France, the earliest days right. of yeah. cinema. Right. And uh, there was a brief RKO Pathé merger, but it was, to paraphrase the name of a Warner Archive title, in name only, and eventually hmm. the Pathé part went elsewhere. But this is one of those rare films that's actually called an RKO Pathé production, and it has that cool logo. I, I, and when the RKO company uh, sold the back library of films to television in the 50s, most of the RKO logos, regardless of whether they were the tower mm. or this or that, were all chopped up and everything became C&C movie time. Warner Brothers has worked hard to restore RKO logos just as Turner did before we bought Turner, and just as RKO did themselves in the 80s mm. when they kind of got into the video business before Turner bought RKO and before we bought Turner. So restoring the original logos to these films is often a difficult thing. But thankfully, the original negative was intact, and we went back to the original nitrate, which we store at the Library of Congress. And from that came new preservation elements and this beautiful new master of this really terrific film, which I think a lot of people are going to be very excited about because we get asked about it all the time. And Constance I Bennett is really... Terrific. Constance Bennett is a waitress who becomes discovered by a brilliant but deeply flawed director who has a problem with alcohol. Hmm. As she goes up, he comes down. The film hmm. has invited comparisons. She, she meets a millionaire. To, you know, a, and to a later a movie, but it really is a very different story. It is a very different story. For one thing, this is very much about friendship and loyalty, whereas Star is Born... And is about love. I, and I don't, you know, because right. again, bringing this back into our internal world of podcast, but in reading the Barbara Stanwyck book that we did, even though the timing is off, but it reminded me a little bit of the stuff from this era of her life about how she was friends with one person and the press is hounding. You know, it's, yeah. it's all very interesting. So you get to see a lot of Hollywood locations. Oh, yes. It, it really is 
an invaluable uh, and, trip back in time. And speaking of Batman, wait, am I alone here? I maybe. I guess so. Neil Hamilton. Oh yeah, it's, it's young, young Neil Hamilton. Young, very young, young. handsome, dashing when, Neil when, Hamilton. When I was a kid, I was freaked out because I used to like to watch, you know, Batman, and it was it was new then. And how could Commissioner Gordon have? I was already into How could Commissioner handsome Gordon playboy. have been in D.W. Griffith's America in 1924? I yeah. didn't understand that, and I was, you know, this is not many four or five year olds have those kind of. Problems, right. but I did. Neil Hamilton's the third lead in this film. He right. plays along the, with Lowell Sherman, yeah, who plays who is the, brilliant, and the, uh, he really gives a uh, an unsung performance. Yeah, he yeah. Is brilliant. I, I was very much like, wow, it, why it, hasn't Max Carey become an icon the way other like true great character breakouts? I have? think one of the reasons is that this film. So many people refer to this as uh, you know, the Stars Born was a remake of Wood Price Hollywood. And it's like, no, it yeah. isn't. And uh, when Selznick left RKO, he went to MGM, and then he formed his own independent production company. And one of the early films he produced in 1937 was A Star is Born. And the RKO legal department said, hmm, we should be looking at these films to see if we have any rights to uh, sue him, right. and they found out that they really weren't similar. And they enough. really didn't, yeah. No, there is an interesting not. kind of way it all comes together in 1954 when George Cukor ah, once again yeah, is yeah, directing yeah. a Star is Born remake with oh. Judy Garland, which is one of the great treasures of the Warner Brothers Library. So it does kind of come full circle. So the question is, what price Hollywood? Find out at warnerarchive.com. That's right, where you can buy this wonderful remastered DVD for a very, very good price. You have added to your collection. Nothing to lose but your tears. Now, we make a total shift to the future. Speaking of tears. (laughs) Make sure the TARDIS is bigger on the inside. As we time travel to the 1980s and go through a very diverse group, films from the 80s and 90s and the uh uh-ohs, (laughs) Films that Paramount had out on DVD that were out of print for a very long time. But we've changed that because we brought them back in print. And we start with 1983's Testament. All of these, what they do have in common is they have a base of fans who love these films, but they may not have a a large, well, except for one of them, but a larger well-known audience. And Testament is a perfect example. And the history of this film is kind of unique. Very interesting. Testament was part of a wonderful television uh, endeavor that PBS ran called American Playhouse, and it was supposed to be made for television. It was supposed to be an American Playhouse film. And it was shown at a film festival and considered so incredible that Paramount acquired it for theatrical distribution. And then it played on American Playhouse thereafter. And some of the other films that had a similar kind of Which uh, were, journey. It, 1983 okay. was a big year, yeah, big year for, for post-nuclear well, entertainment. As we, <laughs> you know, the day after was an ABC yeah. television yeah. film. And after after 20 years of living with the threat of getting blown to kingdom come, people decided to make movies about it in which they tried to portray the horror of nuclear war while not actually showing the true horror of nuclear war because there wouldn't have been anyone around. To, to survive. To, to shoot it. In certain cities, Yes, Testament was huge. Testament yeah, yeah, yeah. was huge in New York. It, it wasn't huge very many other yeah. places. Well, it was this day after and the BBC's 
threads. Right. And threads, that was it. I kept on calling it pieces. Yes. My personal view on this is threads to me is the most horrific and frightening. Day Afters is pretty... Uh, it's the most TV miniseries. Yes, it really is. And then this is, and a lot of people like this one because it doesn't focus as much on the actual blowing upness of it's the horror. It's very much a character piece. It's a character piece about the slow disintegration of a family. And one of the first ladies of the stage, especially of that period, Jane Alexander, is the lead in this film. And uh, what American Playhouse did was create films that were of theatrical quality, but that would premiere on PBS. And that's why this one ended up going to theaters. The same thing happened a few years later with Longtime Companion, which ended up being one of the last productions of American Playhouse because it became too expensive to make them, especially as government funding for PBS started to dwindle. And you started to see that kind of content be handled by places like HBO HBO, to this day. But it's really a piece of its time. So Speaking uh, of its time, I just wanted to tell people you also want to keep an eye out for a very young Rebecca De Mornay and Kevin Costner. Together yeah. with a couple and small parts. And but Kevin Costner And there's Costner, no Silverado in sight. <laughs> Kevin Costner would that talk about right. this film when he would do later uh post apocalyptic movies as this one as being so sincere that he would kind of go back so he to then this gave experience. Us the yes. Yeah. He did. Is, this is a big really, statue. Um, of him. Uh, this is really heartfelt and very well made. An Australian director Bruce Beresford went on location to have Richard Gere, who at the time was coming off of big starring vehicles, such as an officer and a gentleman, and this is a biblical epic, which biblical epics had fallen out of fashion by this time, so it was, hey, let's make a biblical epic and call it King David. And let's also, unlike a lot of biblical epics, this is a very sincere effort to do the historical record as best as we can. And make it intimate. Yeah. And ground personalized. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, to everyone, the gods, and this is true of people historically, the gods were real, and it's presented in a this-is-how-it-happened manner. I was particularly impressed with the David and Goliath scene. I thought that it showed it in a very interesting and almost historical manner about how champions would come forward and what a true humiliation that would be in that in that circumstance. I just kept expecting somebody to say, I don't know, Dave. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> if but he had a dog. In, in all seriousness, King David is... Uh, a film that has been MIA, Missing in Action, is now back in print, directed by Bruce Barraford. Great performance from Richard Gere. Moving on, we next have Lady Jane. And Matt, you had some very distinct opinions of this movie. Lady Jane is... Not is, to be confused with Lady Fingers. Is, now, I'll just say... Now, who is Lady Jane, yeah, Matthew? Well, Lady Jane, as a historical figure, was a... And, and people sometimes count it or don't count it. The queen that only reigned for nine days. And it would be... Uh, that was quite a snowstorm. Yes, it was It was a whole nine days because after the death of uh, King Henry VIII, it went to his young son, Edward, who died at 16. And then, you know, in a Game of thrones and like, well, okay, who's going to be queen next, you know, kind of moment. Uh, Lady Jane was held up by one set of political people. And then nine days later, Mary, Queen of Scots comes. And after that, Queen uh, Elizabeth Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Not Mary Queen of Scots, by the way. I'm sorry, <laughs> Mary. Okay. Mary. 
I get you know. Another Mary was in Scotland. That was a yes, cousin. Different one. Sorry, thanks. It's okay. Um, I get you know sometimes. He figures it's just over there. It's all one the crazy pond. family when right. you think about it. Yes, it all is. One was Catholic. Most one was of them Protestant. Are They're all really French. Point being, this is an interesting historic period, and so uh, Helena Bonham Carter. A uh, uh, very young Helena Bonham Carter. Very young. Doing that very young Helena Bonham Carter thing where you're like, wow, she just like came out of the egg before fully she, acting. Before <laughs> she played Mrs. <laughs> Lee Harvey yeah. Oswald. Yeah. And this is really the first breakthrough performance that made her. Uh, yeah. And her dad is a slightly more haired Patrick Stewart. And then a mere year and a half later, he would be commanding the Starship Enterprise. So Pulling his thank, shirt down and making thank history. Thank God for that. His hair was still a little red in this one. He's always Sejanus to me. <laughs> oh, a yeah. few years later, John Turturro decided he was going to be in a Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> and the results it's were a true, film folks. called Brain Donors. Uh, Brain Donors from 1992. Now, this is a cult film because there is a cult mm-hmm. that loves this movie. But it, it was not. It was no, not it was very, li- very limited distribution in 1992. It was written by Pat Proft, who worked a lot with uh, the Zucker brothers. And Americathon. Americathon, exactly. Uh, it, it drew on Night at the Opera very directly. Well, yes. it, it, they actually like WGA screen credited. Yeah. No, but, but which is opera. interesting is one of the old taglines for this film is in the tradition of Abbott and Costello, the Three Stooges, and the Reagan administration. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, no, it's in the tradition of the Marx Brothers. Why are you avoiding that? Well, probably because they were, you know, not not wanting to get too associated with any one thing. But we'll say that here. Kaufman and Riskin are in the credits. It it feels very, very much like an an homage homage to the Marx Brothers. It is definitely an homage to the Marx Brothers. How would you do the Marx Brothers in a modern age? Well, you stick three lunatics into high society. It's 1992 high society, and instead of the opera, it's the ballet. And instead of Margaret Dumont, we have the equally great Nancy Marchand. You've got a lot of people uh, looking very pained as much chaos happens around them. And we should mention who produced the film. The Zuckers Zuckers. were the executive producers, yeah. No A, just two Zs. (laughs) (laughs) I think this was coming at a time in Paramount's history where they were having a change of administration. Mm -hmm. So the production people that put this film into production were no longer at the studio by the time it was released and this film was caught in the shuffle. That's my hypothesis. And and, this was like one of these movies that came out on VHS. Oh, yeah. And it found... And played forever on HBO. Yeah. And people want to own it, and now we've made that possible by putting it back in print. Now we skip to the end of the decade, mm-hmm. and uh, a great, great film director whose work I really love, Alan Parker, directed an adaptation of the best-selling book, Angela's Ashes, the book by Frank McCourt, which was an international bestseller. And this is a heartbreaking memoir of his upbringing in poverty and there's a lot of controversy of whether the film captures the book accurately or not among people who are passionate about mm-hmm. the book but we talked last week about the world according to garp there it's the same kind of situation there are some people that are so married to the word on the page that mm-hmm. any kind of veering off from that is we, not that's not how to. i am with benchley's jaws i <laughs> mean that <laughs> film is just nowhere near as morbid as the what, book what's captured you know look they use some of the you know words from the book in the voiceover which i feel carries it over but we've talked about these sort of irish 
films before, yes. you know, from all different eras. And the great irony in the book and in this is the kid growing up in Brooklyn who has to move back to Ireland oh, yeah. with the family and how it's just grinding, grinding, grinding poverty. This is a deeply disturbing and, film. And you can see it in the film. Like, the celluloid brings it on home, like, just how, uh, when you compare Brooklyn at the time to this, like, just how they've almost stepped back in, in so many ways. Yeah, And we should mention the cast, which includes the one of my favorite actors, Robert Carlyle. Emily Watson. And Emily Watson. As Angela. And it really is, uh, I defy you to not shed a tear after you've watched this movie. It's this, very This is movie. like, uh, you know, and at the time of the 90s, like, you know, made for awards. And uh, Alan Parker, best known for films like Midnight Express and Fame and uh, Shoot the Moon, uh, certainly delivers the goods here. This is a heartfelt and uh, magnificent film, and we're glad to bring it back in print. Then we move to 2002, and Willem Dafoe stars in The Reckoning. This film, completely under my radar, didn't know it existed. I am now ashamed of that fact because it, this film so solidly hits on so many of my personal obsessions, okay. especially my college-era obsessions. I, I, I was just like, wow, this is the film I wrote when I was in college. I watched this about four days before Dan, and I kept going, so, uh, Dan, have you seen it? No, I haven't had a chance to see it. And I'm like, and I'm handing it to Dan literally last night. I'm like, please, Dan, watch this because I knew this is – and this is – 2002, this is the latest film we're talking about, but this, in a weird way, was kind of almost most under the radar. Ah. Oh, without question, it barely got distributed. And just and very simply, I, what is this film, Dan? Let's just start, like, what, what well, is it? Well, it's a medieval noir murder mystery about the transition of theater from morality plays to modern drama, as well as the power of art to inspire the masses to change their political oppression. It's all about power. Yeah. And it's an incredible meditation. And it's got, it's got Willem Dafoe, Paul Bettany, and Brian Cox. And really, people, if Brian Cox is in the movie, you want to watch it. Period. End George, of discussion George, what, what did you think of this one? I thought this film was terrific. Yeah. And I had not, uh, I had not seen nope. it nope. recently. And, I saw it when it came out. And it's got the plague. You know, Black got, Death, yes. I, I mean, left out the Black Death. You know, people, and it's, it's all here. Shot on location. It feels like somebody just takes you right into, you know, this is high medieval times. And this is a, a moment. And, you know, while things moved more slowly then... You see this transition uh, about you know power slowly coming to the people from this very uh, it's oppressive very much emerging war, warlord culture. Emerging. This is this is the a, a beginning law. of the end of the Dark Ages. Yeah, yeah, because right. the Magna Carta wasn't. And too now we're far. going back to them. So yeah, it's, it's all. It's all <laughs> and the thing well, is, like this was just ten years ago, and I'm going to say something you hear us say far too much, I sadly. Know. No one's ever going to release a movie like this anymore. Right, in the theater. In the theater. You'll see this on TV. You'll see and this on the BBC. You know, this... But... It, I have, I can't, we can't go a podcast without mentioning one of our favorite more recent shows, and, and there are about five of them, but I'm going to pull out the Game of Thrones one on this one because the meditations on power and where it comes from and how it affects people and, and how you can change it, like soft and hard power. But that, no dragons, just the horrible abuse of young children. It's all in here. Guaranteed uh, good times for all. Now we shift gears and talk about Warner Archive Instant, our still new 
subscription mm-hmm. video on demand service, which you can try for two weeks free by going to warnerarchiveinstinct.com and signing up for your subscription today, where there are hundreds and hundreds of great movies that you can enjoy and hundreds and hundreds of hours of classic television, both known and never known, that we're always adding new content to the service. And we have some picks that each one of us want to talk to you about the latest additions to Warner Archive Instant. So, gentlemen, please share your picks with the people that are listening to the podcast. Shall I go first? Uh, do you want? Because I have a lot of questions about mine. Because uh, I don't know uh, much my, about mine it. is one of my typical short and sweet. Okay, go. Up goes Maisie uh, because yeah. Maisie helicopter HD 1080p. Yes. Because we need to remind you that you can get Warner Archive Instant on your PC and Mac, but if you do it on iPad or Roku, you can watch many of the movies in HD 1080p, which you can't see in high def anywhere else. We, we have two Maisie collections, and this is in the second Maisie collection where... This the, is the penultimate Maisie. And the penultimate Maisie where If they, you don't count the radio. They got a little wackier uh, towards the end, more influenced Although this by one the actually radio. starts very realistic. And this has, yes, it does. This has the great climax. But yes. it has the, and the best Rose Bowl's in climax. It. It's in the Rose Bowl and a helicopter downtown LA. Look, if Kooky. you like lines like, the stewardess is flying the plane, you'll like Up Goes Maybe. <laughs> Mine is not in HD. It's The Unholy Wife from 1957, an RKO uh, color film. Great that choice. The reason why I clicked it was in large, bold lettering. It said, adult entertainment, and then with the tagline, half angel, half devil. She made him half a man. I thought you were going to go with a large something else, but I'll leave that alone. No large title. We have a very buxom young woman. Who is Diana Doors, who was a, a, as the term was at the time, and I think this is appropriate, she was known as a sex bot. And this is uh, noir. And who's the man she's driving crazy? Rod Steiger. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I got lost because I was trying to figure out which men, because, and Rod Steiger. There's many men she doesn't Well, there's yeah. Tom Tryon also. Right. Yeah. Right. That was why. Uh, Rod Steiger's who I, I was looking for. Sometimes when I pause, I'm answering literally. I'm like, well, I, uh, let me name all the men. Oh, there are quite a few. Oh, which one does he mean? This is the story about a, uh, a guy who, you know, he, uh, well, it's the story about a woman, really, who uh, needs to get rid of her inconvenient rich husband. And it's good that you brought this up because this is one of the films that's not yet on DVD. And we've got some film element work to do before we can remaster it and put it on DVD in widescreen. But meanwhile, there are some films that we've added to the service where we use the best available master that isn't the best quality, but it's the best we have on hand and it gives you an opportunity to see the film. And it's a good, and that's what I noticed as I started watching because I was like, I haven't heard of this. I'm going to bing. And then, you know, it's a little bit scratchy in the beginning. And I was like, oh, this has not been on DVD. No. And until we can make it available, people can sample it just as we have these gorgeous HD masters. We also have some subpar masters, but it's the only way that you can see well, the movie. And this satiates the need to actually enjoy the movie as opposed to yeah. people who are looking, oh, at the quality of the pixels and, versus the quality of the writing, and, acting, and directing. And let me say Diana Doors in her very, very colorful 50s dresses, 
pops off the dark backgrounds. I mean, it's almost like she's wearing a, a spotlight. She's and this is one of the last films uh, that was made by RKO before they got out of the movie business. Oh, that's uh, funny. So this is RKO as they're bidding goodbye, and they had to rely on the uh, distribution of other companies because they'd gotten out uh-huh. of the distribution business. That's, that's interesting. I so mean, these are the final days of RKO. Mine is a film that we've talked about before, but now thanks to high definition and remastering, I really, really have to celebrate <laughs> K. Francis in Jewel Wabwe. In high definition, Kay Francis and William Powell star in Jewel Robbery, which is a delicious pre-code confection about a jewel robbery overseas in Europe. And it's a a naughty little pre-code movie with lots of fun and uh, a couple of joints here and there. I was going to say, if you live in uh, Washington State or Colorado, you might particularly enjoy this film. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, Forbidden Hollywood was this in? This was in volume four, if my memory is serving me Because we did podcast about this Oh, we certainly did. This this is actually a good one to play pre-code violation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It really does define it. Infidelity. Yeah, you get to see Kate Francis in the bathtub at the beginning in HD. and uh, Boy, those petals are popping. It sparkles. (laughs) Many of the Forbidden Hollywood films that we released on DVD not too long ago are now showing up in Warner Archive Instant in HD, so we certainly recommend that you check them all out. But Jewel Robbery was my pick for the week. Hey, George, I just wanted to ask you a quick question about the Instant. You know, uh, some people have been writing into Facebook and on Twitter asking us about what the deal is with some of the titles coming out of Instant, and we've been adding a lot of titles in. How does that work? Well, we will cycle features in and out of the service after a specific period of time due to windowing because Mm -hmm. certain films occasionally have other commitments. If a film is going to be licensed to, let's say, uh, HBO, Mm -hmm. there will be a need to have it be not on a streaming service before or after. I'm just being theoretical. No, no, right, right. So we work with our partners in other divisions here to cycle things in and out. So if something leaves the service, it will come back at some point. And that's why we're always refreshing the service so that there's always something new coming in, something exciting to look forward to. And with our library being as vast and huge as it is, there are always going to be new things to discover, both in terms of feature films and television, as they come into Warner Archive Instant. And if they leave, they'll be back. And right now, uh, up on, it's going to be in all the ways you watch it, we're going to have, I guess there already is a category of things that are leaving soon to warn you. And when we Look for it in your left-hand navigation. And the watch list should be coming out very soon on uh, some of the platforms. And when that happens, it'll be much easier for you to track what you want to see and how and when you want to see it on on whatever device. And we're always working on uh, refining the service as any time you build a new business, you want to make it better. And we take the feedback from our customers and are always working on not only improving the service, but also adding additional platforms. And more platforms are being planned as we speak. There's a lot of uh, work and toil involved in making all this happen. And our commitment, our commitment, our commitment to Warner Archive Instant is uh, unwavering and uh, something that we're all very, very proud of. So, 
If you like what you hear on this podcast and you want to tell us about it, we would love to receive your letters. We don't have a letter to read on the air this week, but maybe we will next week if you'll send one in. So, Matthew, if you will please provide the address to where people can send their cards and letters with stamps on them. Snail mail. Scribble your queries to Warner Archive Collection, B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 915 now, on a personal note, I would ask you also to get in contact on theallenjenkins at gmail.com and cast your vote for this year's Jenkins winners. Oh, yeah, the Jenkins winners, yeah. yeah. Don't let them just dibble in, dribble in. <laughs> well, anyway. Don't let them dibble in, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've gone from blue to streaming to out of print to back in print all things Warner Archive and next week we'll be back with a slew of new releases to tell you about so we hope you'll look for the next Warner Archive podcast but in the meantime I am George Feltenstein I'm Matt Patterson who me the old timer what's the matter with you thanks for listening and look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast <laughs>